Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus. Through this series, we speak to higher education thought leaders about the trends, ideas, and opportunities that are shaping the future of this industry and pick their brains for best practices and advice that leaders can apply to their own institutions. On today's episode, Gary Matkin, the Dean of the Division of Continuing Education and Vice Provost of the Division of Career Pathways at UC Irvine, joins Illumination host Amrit Alawalia live at the UPSIA conference to discuss the second revolution in higher education and how CE leaders can balance revenue goals with their access mission. Well, Gary, thank you so much for joining me for the Illumination podcast here in sunny Orlando, although I guess we are inside. It's a pleasure. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Well, you've been part of UPSIA for for years at this point, obviously leading the Continuing Education Career Services Unit at UC Irvine. How long have you been at UC Irvine? I've been there since 2000, 22 years. Absolutely. And and where were you before that? For 27 years, I was at UC Berkeley in continuing education. So really, the focus of your career has been sort of this public education uh, access mission for for the community and creating that extension from, you know, this R1... Uh, California plan UC institutions uh, to to the communities they serve. That's right. It's been a wonderful career because I've been able to help people change their lives for the better. I I came from the corporate world where the concentration was always on the quarterly earnings and bonuses Mm -hmm. and I shifted over to uh, university because I really felt a, a, a need to devote my career to something other than just money and, and, and uh, the, the shareholder value sort of situation. Absolutely. And I guess what's interesting about continuing education specifically is there is that balancing act between where you're an expert in terms of budget management, financial modeling, uh, demand, uh, understanding demand trends, and creating that access for the community that's going to support folks through socioeconomic development, that's going to help build communities, and that's going to help transform societies. Yes, I think one of the one of the big uh, features of my career and the things that's kept me at it for so long is the fact that uh, I started at early in my career. The second revolution in higher education occurred. The first revolution was the invention of the printing press. Mm-hmm. Not much changed in higher education since then until the internet came along, <laughs> and now internet is so infused in our in everything we do in higher education it's almost hard to see the big changes that have occurred and yet my career spanned from the old style right face-to-face programs to new uh, technology mediated programs providing access greater access to more people and so it's been a really uh, wonderful career to to span that that part of that second revolution, which is still going on. Absolutely. I mean, it seems to just be accelerating and accelerating. I mean, we're both familiar with the concept of Moore's Law, and as computing power gets more and more ubiquitous, and uh, uh, more and more powerful, rather, we're going we're gonna to get to a, an inflection point where, you know, the digital and physical worlds are, are likely going to start connecting. As you look at some of the trends that have shaped continuing education specifically over the past you know, 49 years, you were saying, where do you see the space going in terms of being you know, responsive to learners and and leveraging technology to deliver that responsiveness? Well, you have to look a little bit at the history because the history sort of gives us an idea of what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm writing a paper called um, 
um, uh, about uh, remembering the future, and 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 uh, the the notion is that that the two big things in in continuing education that happened in the second revolution is the notion of online education. Yes, that started for me in about 1994 mm -hmm. when online education became a big issue in higher education. That was That was 2.0 as far as I'm concerned. 2.1 that I became involved in was open education mm -hmm. and and uh, the latest uh, latest development in that is MOOCs and then MOOCs moving toward credit and so forth and that's a big big trend yeah 2.2 is digital credentialing that is that sure. is the big new thing and I think it's going to revolutionize higher education can you talk a little bit more about that I mean what's this is one thing when we talk about digital credentialing on the one hand there's there's the perspective that, you know, digital credentialing is a digital representation of the credential you'd be offering anyway. On the other hand, there are, you know, folks like yourself and who, who look at digital credentialing and say, this is foundationally transformative in terms of what we do. How, why is that? Well, I think, yes, you're, you're right. Digitizing the things we already do, including, including transcripts, regular mm -hmm. transcripts, is a great idea. But the new vista that's opening up for all of us has to do with being, having digital credentials that certify competency rather than learning achievement. Universities yeah. are, are basically set up to, to, to assess learning achievement, not competencies generally. Yes. So being able to, to really focus on competencies and then workplace relevance. Mm -hmm. Those two things are a new vista for higher education. And uh, we've got to get into it. Any, any university that doesn't understand that is going to be left behind. We've been able, we're, we're able now in continuing education to, to get rid of the handcuffs we've had by the Carnegie unit. Yep. And, and now we can be very, very specific on specific skills that are needed in the, work for, in the mm -hmm. workforce, and that's going to open up brand new vistas. You can badge anything, basically, but what we're trying to do at UCI is uh, <clears throat> create um, a very rigorous effort to be focused on competency-based, skill-based programs. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this really is, it's transformative, as, as you've said, because when we have the capacity to step outside of traditional credentialing models, when we have the capacity to look at what an individual is capable of, as opposed to how long an individual sat in, sat in a seat, we're really starting to actually get over some of those roadblocks that we're seeing increasing critique of higher education resulting from. You know, folks look at a higher education graduate and say, well, you know, I don't this is a signal of what they might be able to do. This isn't necessarily a communication of what they have done or what they are able to do, what they've demonstrated. As we start to shift towards more outcomes-based education, how can continuing education divisions and leaders play a greater role in helping the broader institution shift towards this different mindset around uh, learning achievement as opposed to, you know, doing what we've you know sort of historically done in terms of being more on the periphery of the institution and trying to trying to do everything in a, in a bubble continuing education units can really um, help their universities if they can get involved in the, the creating the infrastructure for doing rigorous digital badging yeah 
We, on our campus, we have now engaged the faculty. We have issued about 200 badges to matriculated students where faculty have created within the courses that they're offering digital badges yep. featuring skills, particularly in engineering and the arts. So for instance, a, a badge in Adobe Photoshop for textile design. You, you go through a textile design course, but you get a badge in using Adobe Photoshop or whatever it is. Yes. Um, uh, 3D printing, Rhinoceros 6.0, producing art objects, yes. right? Those are the kinds of things that, that it's not only good for the students because they can put it on their resume, but it actually improves pedagogy. Yes. Because we found that students who are getting a badge are more engaged, they're, they're looking at something that's really relevant. Yes. And on the other hand, our faculty are being uh, pushed in a way toward more relevance yes. themselves because they see this as being a very positive thing. So I think there's a dynamic here that's really going to push us forward. That's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting perspective as well, because you're right, it's not just about making sure the learners are engaged, although that is, it has to be our number one priority. It also changes the, the complexion of course design, program design, by being more specifically outcomes oriented. There's no question that the offering needs to deliver on those outcomes. And, you know, we, uh, we spoke with David Scable yesterday at Excelsior, and he has a very similar perspective around, you know, how the liberal arts has historically been more or less fallen into the category of training future academics. Although we, we talk about the liberal arts in terms of the capacity to generate massive, massive workforce-ready skills, we don't necessarily have those as clear and distinct outcomes, though, and we don't necessarily drive programs to, to achieve those. So this is very much along the same lines that, that you're framing out here. That's right. Humanities are a special case. It turns out the humanities graduates generally do better five years out than, than graduates in biological sciences mm -hmm. um, because they have the skills uh, of communication and so forth. In certain cases, it's hard to badge certain kinds of competency-based badging is a little difficult in some of these more human uh, interaction, but we can definitely badge communication communication effectiveness yeah. in, in certain realms and so forth. So there's plenty of room in, even in the humanities for workplace relevant skills to be featured. Absolutely. Now, pivoting a little bit, um, you're obviously, you're doing a course for Upsia right now around, you know, building uh, budgeting models designed for continuing education. And it's a topic that, that I find particularly fascinating because of the dual responsibilities of, you know, a continuing education and extension unit. On the one hand, these are the units that are primarily responsible for serving the community, extending the expertise of the university to folks that might not otherwise be able to access it, creating pathways for underserved individuals to get high quality learning opportunities that support socioeconomic development and, and community, community building. On the other hand, these are the divisions that don't generate any funding from the state. So for the most part, these are divisions that are responsible for being at minimum revenue neutral, and in many cases, revenue generating and, and providing funding back to the university to, to buttress operational expenses. How do you balance these sort of twin priorities when, to a certain extent, they're, they're kind of foundationally opposite? Well, I think that, that um, the university obligation, particularly a land-grant university like ours, has an has a obligation to citizens of the state more broadly than just the 
matriculated students we, we train, right? Mm -hmm. and, and one of the big differences in philosophy among continuing education units is, are we serving the university or are we serving the community? Yeah. In, in some cases, uh, continuing education arms are not allowed to do certain kinds of programs because they're not related to what a fac what a, what faculty expertise on the campus is. Right. Whereas the community wants something on project management. Right? Yep. And so there, there's a there's this differentiation. Now the the problem is that most of us are self-supporting or largely self-supporting. So we have to go into the marketplace, which on one hand is very good because we're serving the market for what it wants and we're close to the market. On the other hand, there are a lot of people that can't afford to pay the freight that we're charging for these courses. And that's a, that's a real, a real, really big problem. It's yeah. really hard to, to find funding for. But on the other hand, we all of us have partnerships with workforce investment boards that are providing funding for our students. And mm -hmm. basically what, what we're doing, there's a lot of effort in, in society to, um, to, to get people who are unemployed or underemployed to get them, I say, on the, on the back of the train, on the caboose. Yeah. We're, we're generally looking at taking people from second class to first class. Yes. And that, that increase in that leveraging of their prior experience, leveraging their prior education and making it better gives a huge economic boost to any region. Yes. And so that's, that's basically where we're, where we're looking, where, a lot of what we're doing. Absolutely. So it's a matter of, you know, when you're serving audiences that have the capacity to support revenue generation, whether that's a corporate audience, an international audience, um, you know, maybe a, a high level open enrollment program, you're looking at, you know, the cost and you're looking at, you know, at least recovering cost on those, if, if not generating revenue. But on the other hand, you're using that as well as community partnerships to subsidize programming that's really designed for folks who couldn't necessarily afford the offerings. And, and an important note here is that these offerings generally aren't uh, accessible when it comes to financial aid. Right, exactly. We, we generally, most of us have what I call, use what I call the Robin Hood principle, where we take, take those audiences that can pay for, pay full freight for continuing education mm -hmm. and subsidize to a certain extent those that can't. For instance, yeah. there's, a general, there's a general subsidy for uh, teachers. Yes. We charge teachers for professional education, but many of those teachers are getting their, their tuition paid for by their districts or through contracts, or we have low, lower costs for them than for engineers or business people or so forth. So there's a, there is definitely the Robin Hood principle going on. That's a, it's a, I love the name of that because it, it does make sense. And, and to your point, it's important to recognize when we're talking about the cost of a post-secondary program and, and this idea of a Robin Hood principle, you're really talking about opportunities to build a community. You know, this is this is an investment in, in your in your society, it's an investment in your neighbors. It's a very positive perspective to take on, on the role and the capacity of a post-secondary institution in what is a relatively challenging environment. That's right. I think uh, one of the things that, that we sometimes lose sight of is the fact that um, we're a we are generally a huge boost 
to regional economics. Yes. Because we're training the workforce that is needed in that community. And we have to be close to that community and know its needs in order to do that. And so whenever there's a, right now particularly, where there's so many jobs uh, being unfilled because of lack of skilled workforce, that's where we can come into play. If we can get the right partnerships with the right employers and, and get a, a track where a learning pathway and a competency-based pathway leads to a job. Yeah. That, that is the, and, and, but we have to have the cooperation of the employers to do that. And that's that getting those, getting education units, education organizations and the community employers together is sometimes a real challenge. So how have you overcome that obstacle in the past? Because you are talking about some pretty serious negotiation at this point. Well, one of the things we're doing, we have a, a significant uh, corporate training uh, outfit. And one of the things we're doing, for instance, is we're in about seven instances with major employees in Orange County. We've embedded a direct uh, way of enrolling in our public courses in their they're inside university, they're corporate university. So, and, and we have a background PO so that a, an employee from Edwards Life Sciences can enroll in project management and that is automatically billed to the company. Right. So we, we've got those kind of relationships that are they're really uh, sort of uh, finding the needs of the co corporations through our public programs. Got it. So as you look at, you know, where continuing education has been as an industry and, and some of the changes we've certainly seen over the last five years in terms of a strategic shift in what continuing education does and how it contributes to the institution, what do the next five or ten years look like for us? It's, it's going to be a huge change. The, the major situation is that the competitive landscape for continuing education universities has completely changed. Mm. Uh, this year, I think... Um, there will be $25 billion put into education, uh, capitalizing educational initiatives. Wow. Almost none of that is coming directly to universities. Because that I attended the AS, ASU GSV Summit last week in, in uh, San Diego. Yes. There were 7,000 people at that at that convention, which is really basically ed tech mm -hmm. and education related uh, programs. And th they had five categories of members. Educators were the lowest number of people in that 7,000 people. Huh. And, 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 and what I'm saying is that we, we have to be, we have to be understand that we've got to form partnerships with these big with these for-profit corporations in order to get a, any sort of uh, chunk of that money. Mm -hmm. And they need us right now. They may not need us in 10 years, but right now they need <laughs> us. And so we've got to take advantage of that yeah. and make these partnerships really stick. No, and this is, this is an interesting point because, uh, you know, the evolution's been operating for, for about uh, 12, 12 years now, call it. You were one of the first contributors. And by the way, Thank you for being one of the first contributors to the evolution. Pleasure. 
As I look at the landscape over the past decade, there's been, obviously, as you said, there's a shift in the strategy in continuing education. There's a recognition of the, the work that these divisions need to do. There's a recognition for the need to, to scale, to grow, to drive revenue for the institution, to drive enrollment growth, to create diversified streams of, of both revenue and, and learner populations. And, you know, in our 2022 State of Continuing Education report, which came out uh, on, on Monday of this week at the start of the UPSIA conference, that really proves out in the survey results, where we're seeing more and more pressure on continuing education to drive significant results, to scale, to grow. And on the other hand, 46% of respondents couldn't tell you what their, couldn't tell us what their enrollment numbers were last year. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's a foundational gap in terms of how we're resourcing continuing education workforce development units to actually execute on some of these goals. And a lot of that seems to come down to a. a call it a mistrust, call it a misunderstanding around the need to work with, with partners outside of the academy. What's at the root of that gap between the, the, the education space and, and the folks that are designed to, to serve it and support it? It's a that's a complex question to answer. Obviously, there are, there's inertia in higher education to form partnerships with for-profits. There's always a, there's always a a, a taint, you might say, on, on that kind of relationship. And even making money in some cases is an <laughs> antithetical to universities. And certainly universities have a big stake in risk avoidance. Right. And if you're going into the marketplace, you've got to take risks. Yes. And so everything from the contract, the contracts we have to try to sign to the, to the, to the uh, faculty approval process that might happen, uh, there's a whole bunch of complex sort of interrelationships that have to change. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, but at the same time, there's really a compel... If we're going to serve our communities, we're going to have to get the resources to do that. And for instance, boot camps is an example. There's no way that any individual university extension could ever create a boot camp and keep it up going for, for its own little audience. Yep. So that's why Trilogy came along now to you. And those curricular arrangements have to, have to expand mm -hmm. because we just don't have the capacity to create and then benefit from the, the return on the investment of the investment, upfront investment and so forth. So mm -hmm. we really, we've, we've really got to shift our whole focus into being from more, we can we should continue to be creators of continuing education, but we also sh should shift to curators of in, of education sure. because we we can vet the 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 most uh, most effective and best uh, vendors out there who can provide us with these curricula. Well, that and that's one of the principles at the core of the sixty-year curriculum is this idea that. You know, rather than being a gatekeeper of knowledge, a, a post-secondary institution of the future, a post-secondary institution that's truly committed to lifelong learning is more of a guide of an individual's learning pathway. It provides suggestions, it provides opportunities, it, it proactively promotes uh, programming that might be relevant to that individual, and at the same time, it encourages post-secondary institutions to not create everything from scratch, but instead to look to, to partners to, to sort of fill the gaps so that the institution itself can really focus on the things that they're experts in. Right. And I think uh, I always, my North Star is always what's good for students. Yeah. And 
our students are non-matriculated students in the community. What's good for them? Um, I, and I try very much to shape our institution toward that idea. For a land-grant university like us, we have to serve the citizens of the state and citizens of the region and so forth. And uh, these, these barriers that come up against us really ultimately have to come down when you argue for the benefit of the students. Absolutely. Well, Gary, it's been a, a, a pleasure chatting with you here. I always enjoy when we have time to get together. And once again, a, a congratulations on just a, an incredible career. Thank you for everything you've, you've done for this industry. Thank you for everything you've done, certainly for, for the evolution and, and for me personally. I, I've, I've always enjoyed our opportunities to collaborate. Well, I, I really appreciate evolution because you're really getting a lot of messages out there. I get it on my weekly or <laughs> even more frequently, I think, on yeah, my email. Yeah, a few emails a yeah, week. Yeah. yeah, and so uh, I really appreciate the, the, the uh, way that you disseminate information about our field and always be, be happy to contribute to it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much and, and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks a lot, Emma. This episode is brought to you by Modern Campus in partnership with The Evolution. Modern Campus empowers higher ed institutions to thrive when radical change is required to deal with lower student enrollments and revenue, rising costs, crushing student debt, and even school closures. Powered by the industry's only student-first modern learner engagement platform, Modern Campus supports every corner of the modern institution, from continuing and workforce education, to student affairs, to the registrar's office, to marketing and IT. To find out more on how you can transform your institution to meet the needs of the modern learner, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.